Maud Kells, it's really good to have you with us tonight. Thank you very much for joining us. But I think it's Maud Kells OBE, isn't it? That's correct. <laughs> so who who awarded you the OBE? Uh, Prince William. Uh, it was indeed a, a tremendous honour and privilege to meet him. Uh, biggest surprise, one of the biggest surprises. <laughs> yes, indeed. And and um, are we allowed to ask what did he ask you? Uh, yes, he asked me, um, he said, first of all, oh, you've been all over Africa. So I was uh, indicating to him, no, I'd only been to the center of Africa and was going to tell him a little bit more about having lived and worked in, in uh, DR Congo. Uh, and then he said, oh, you're the lady who was shot. So he seemed to know that a few months previous, to have two, three months previous to that, I had uh, been involved in a shooting incident in the Congo. And so he was very concerned about how I was and was the wound healing up and and uh, just and uh, really most interested and very concerned. And it was really lovely to, to see his response. That's remarkable. I imagine when you were growing up, you had no idea that you would meet the man who probably will be our future king. <laughs> Never in my wildest dreams. <laughs> <laughs> and when uh, when I was out in the Congo and my sister sent an email because in the Congo there's no postal service so they couldn't send the invitations direct to me so my sister got the invitations and she emailed to tell me and at first I wouldn't believe her didn't reply <laughs> to the email I just couldn't I thought that's impossible she wrote another second time and I said oh that couldn't possibly be true no way that's a joke <laughs> No, 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 it's real. There's, I've got the invitations here in my hand. You have been invited to Buckingham Palace. You're going to be awarded the OBE. Well, really, it was such a shock. And then the night that I was shot and I felt my life was ebbing away, I thought, that's goodbye, OBE. It's strange the things where <laughs> your life is ebbing away. <laughs> Amazing. And, uh, well, we'll come on to that. Um, tell us a bit about your, your upbringing, your home life as a girl. Uh, well, I was born uh, a family of four girls. I was the second in the family, and we were brought up on a farm uh, in Ireland, Northern Ireland, and uh, just uh, did the usual things. Went to church, Sunday school, uh, uh, primary school, grammar school, and then went off to, on to do nursing, nurse training in Belfast. And was it a Christian home? No. Uh, well, they were good, good, loving people. And we always, uh, God was honoured in our home. Uh, my father didn't go to church because he had a hearing problem and he never, he said there was no point in him going, he couldn't hear. Mother always sent us to Sunday school and church, but uh, it was not an evangelical church. And so we knew to fear God on a Sunday night, every or Saturday evening, everything was prepared for Sunday. Uh, so it was, it was, a, it was a, a good home, but not an evangelical Christian home. So where did you come across sort of Bible-believing, genuine Christianity? Well, when I started nursing, and of course I was very apprehensive about everything, and uh, some Christian nurses became befriended me and were very kind and, and very helpful to me and invited me along to Nurses Christian Fellowship meetings. And there I heard the gospel, and I was very influenced by the Christian lives of these lovely girls uh, and after about a year of searching and I began to question, what's life about? Why are we here on earth and facing death for the first time in a hospital and particularly children? 
Of course, I was questioning what happens when we die. And uh, all these questions were coming up. And I was getting some answers through going to the Nurses Christian Fellowship meetings. But I knew in my heart of hearts that I really what I needed was to know God in a personal way. I knew about going to church on a Sunday. Uh, he was somebody way up far off, but not a personal relationship. So then I began to search for him over that first year that I was doing nursing training. Hmm. And how long then did it take until you came to that moment where you were to put your trust in Christ? Yes, one Sunday, uh, one Sunday evening or afternoon and evening, I was visiting an aunt and uncle, and my uncle was a retired Presbyterian minister who oh. was an evangelical man. And uh, we'd been watching something on the television about the ecumenical movement, which my uncle was disapproving of. But as we were, he was leaving me out to the bus stop to get the bus uh, back into the nursing nurse's home. And he challenged me and he said to me, Maud, you know, the most important thing in life is trusting Jesus. Yeah, all that uh, we were watching and discussing this afternoon is of no importance. The most important thing you can ever do is to ask the Lord Jesus into your heart and life. And he was challenging me just as the bus was coming and as the doors of the bus were opening, he was challenging me. A verse of scripture I had heard at our Nurses Christian Fellowship, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in, will sup with him and he with me. And so very, very simply, as I was getting on the bus, I asked the Lord Jesus to come into my heart and life and asked him to forgive me my sins. And I just knew from that moment on my life had changed. I just knew that he had come in and he was in control of my life. And what a difference it made. You know, a real peace. The questions that I had suddenly became, and the word of God, before this, I had tried reading scriptures, but I just couldn't understand them. It didn't make sense. But after this, with the help of Scripture Union, the word of God became alive and real to me and very meaningful. And what wonderful promises we have there. I just wonder how I I managed without them beforehand. But uh, promises like Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. I will uphold thee with my righteous right hand. What a promise. And on so many occasions I have held, I've held on and claimed that promise. And it's meant so much. And what a difference it has made. Mm. Amazing. Now, presumably you finished your nursing training. Did you work for a while in Northern Ireland as a nurse? No, no. I went on over to Edinburgh to do my midwifery training. And it was halfway through my midwifery training. And I was asking the Lord what I should do when I'd finished my training. And again, I decided to do something I'd never done before, but I'd heard that Christians did. And that was to fast and pray. So I skipped dinner one day and went up to my bedroom opened my Bible at my scripture union notes. And the reading for that particular day was again from Revelations chapter three. But this time it was verse 10, verse eight. Behold, I have laid before you an open door that no man can shut. There is a little strength and kept my word and not denied my name. I knew that was God speaking to me. But being doubtful and fearful and thinking I could never be a missionary, uh, I asked the Lord for a seal. And so I asked him if he really was calling me into missionary work or full-time work. I prayed that within 24 hours, I'd hear something about a Bible college. (laughs) 
And so I finished my prayer, went back on duty that afternoon. Next morning after breakfast, as we usually did before there was any such thing as email, but we used to go to the pigeonholes to to see if there were any letters from home. And sure enough, there was a letter in the K pigeonhole, but it wasn't from home. It was actually from a Bible college in Glasgow. Well, that's exactly what I had asked. I knew as soon as I opened that, I knew this was just the Lord saying, now do you believe me? Do you? <laughs> so uh, then when I'd finished my midwifery training, then I went on to the WEC Missionary Training College in Glasgow. Now, uh, now WEC is a missionary organization that, um, yeah. And, and it was right. with, with this particular organization, eventually, how old were you when you first went to to the Congo? Well, by the time I'd finished all my, because I did children's training, I did general training, I did midwifery training, I did Bible school training, and then I had to go over to Belgium to do, do a tropical diseases course in French as well. By the time I'd finished all that, I was 28 years of age. <laughs> and well, it's still quite young. And, um, and what was it like then to, you know, to, to leave the UK and to go and to those, Africa? It's a big step. Very big step. And in those days, we didn't fly out. We actually sailed out by boat round the west coast of Africa from Antwerp to to the west coast uh, to Matadi, which was the port, and to the Congo. And so the two weeks gave us gave me time to adapt to a different culture. And, and uh, uh, it was very, very different. And, and, you know, it wasn't like today when you can... Uh, turn on the internet or look on television and see pictures of other countries, the country's good. But I saw no pictures of the Congo. I had absolutely no idea what I was going to. Amazing. So it was, it was exciting and fearful at the same time, if you can understand that. Uh, mm. so, but it was wonderful just how the Lord led and guided and directed step by step. And, and were you, I don't know, were you working with a group of other missionaries there? Yes, yes, went out, uh, actually traveled out with two other young missionaries. One was going out with WAC, the other one was going with RBMU. And uh, then uh, uh, we, when we arrived, of course, our field leader out there in the Congo met us. And uh, then uh, and it was just before Christmas, so we actually spent Christmas at the headquarters with, with the field leader. And uh, uh, it was uh, quite an experience. Christmas was so, so, so different out there. There was, you know, no, no cards, no tinsel, no parties, no presents, no nothing. Just um, meeting in a in a church, and all the local churches came in, and lots and lots of singing and praising the Lord, and then an evangelical witness because there were a lot of unsaved people, pagan people coming in as well, and it was always a time when we saw people find the Lord. And it, uh, very exciting. So that was my first introduction. Amazing. Now, Maud, clearly you were there to share the fact that Christ came into the world for, for individuals. He came to save us, to forgive us. But what other sort of work were you involved in as well as proclaiming the gospel? Uh, well, being a nurse, I was asked if I could get involved and help out with the medical work. And of course, I had to change, learn another language as well. Nobody speaks English in DRC. So uh, I had to learn Swahili. That was the first thing I had to learn Swahili and then learn about medical work in the Congo, which is very different from medical work here because of so many tropical diseases, particularly malaria and worms and at that time leprosy. But um, uh, So I had to learn about that. But then eventually, then I worked alongside, uh, I, actually my first mission station, I was with an, a, an elderly teacher 
who continued to teach me Swahili. And then there was a local uh, health center there. So I worked alongside two Africans in this little health center. And that I got uh, introduced to medical work in Africa that way. And, uh, uh, and and learn Swahili at the same time. Amazing. Now, altogether, how many years were you out there working? Uh, well, now, the, I was out just under three years, and then I had to come home uh, for a couple of years because my, or a few years, because my mother was very ill. Uh, she was actually dying of cancer, and I had to come home to care for her for three months, and then I stayed at home to care for my father, who was elderly. And, but that was a joy, and really I could see the Lord's hand in it afterwards because neither of them were believing Christians, but I had the joy of seeing both of them come to the Lord before they died. And, and I always remember my mother, a couple of occasions I didn't read and pray with her just a few shortly before she died, and she said to me, now you forgot to read and pray last night, <laughs> the next morning. So uh, that was that meant a lot to me that that, that so much to her, uh, a person who hadn't known the Lord. And yes. my father was very resistant to the gospel and very well, didn't really approve of me being on the mission field. Uh, but again, about three months before he died, very, very simply, he just asked the Lord into his heart and life as well. So that was a great privilege mm. to be able to do that. And then I went back to the field. And really, I went out in 1968. So, and I'm still going back and forth. <laughs> the year I was back out. And so I've Wonderful. been out over 50 years. Wonderful. Now, <clears throat> I'm sure you have story after story, but tell us one or two of the sort of very remarkable incidents you remember, Maud. Uh, well, when I first went to work at this little place called Molita in the 80s, uh, it, uh, there was just a... a um, a very rural health centre, but there were a lot of mothers and babies dying on uh, uh, childbirth. And so I was asked to train midwives. Well, I said, we need a maternity unit. And they said, well, we have a we have a maternity unit. When I went there, it was just a mud hut. Well, how do you wash a mud floor or wash hygiene <laughs> in a mud hut? Impossible. Mm. We to improvise by putting down planks on the floor and plastic sheeting, and that didn't work. So, um, I said, we need a proper building. So although I have no experience in building, the Lord really guided us step by step. I found an old Congolese man who was a mason, another old Congolese man who was a a, a, a carpenter, another one was a sawyer. They'd been trained by Belgians in the Belgian days before they got independence in 1960. And so with them, who trained younger men, we made our own bricks. We cut down the trees in the forest and we got the ladies to bring us up their antenatal clinic stones for the foundation of our maternity unit. And it ended up not just building a maternity unit yeah, and a surgical ward and an operating theatre and a medical and pediatric ward. And, and we built a whole complete hospital, a little hospital. And then after that, uh, we realised there were a lot of children at Molita. They had no school, no proper school to go to. So we ended up uh, building a seven-classroom primary school as well, which has been a tremendous blessing, mm. bringing education to the children as well. So it's been such a privilege. And, and then I was teaching in Bible school as well, and helping in the hospital and ordering medication and, and in the early days treating leprosy patients. But it was just amazing how uh, over the years just to see God's hands and his intervention. Wonderful. Tell us the story of the um, the white coats. 
Yes, this was after it'd been out for a number of years, and uh, our field leader in the year of 1998 decided that we should have a, a field conference. And so we were all invited up to a place called the Zero, and we'd just arrived when suddenly war was declared again. Now, we'd been evacuated on previous occasions, but we thought the war was over. Uh, and <clears throat> Uh, war was declared again. The borders were all closed. We couldn't get out of the country. But we did have radio communication with missionaries in Nairobi. And they said, if it's, uh, 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 we, we, we can't uh, go in and collect you and evacuate you without permission from the government. So if you could go and ask the state people if they would give us permission to bring in a plane, uh, we'll come in and evacuate you. Uh, but they wouldn't give us the permission. So after a fortnight, the pilots said they were coming in to get us anyhow, but they couldn't land where we were because the airstrip was mined. We had to go to another mission station about 77 kilometers away. We made our way by various means there, and we were told by the pilots to put a white sheet on the ground if it was safe to land. Now, they were supposed to land at 20 to 11 this particular morning, but they didn't, uh, 20 to 11 came and went, and 10 to 11, 11 o'clock, 10 past 11, 20 past 11, half past 11, 20 to 12, an hour later, still no plane. Well, you can imagine how we were all very anxious, because around us, around the airstrip, there was a very hostile group of people who uh, put barrels on the airstrip to prevent the plane landing and called us for all the names of the day. So uh, we uh, were praying uh, for God's deliverance. So when the plane didn't come, when it was supposed to come, we were even more anxious. And after an hour, we were just meeting together in groups of twos and threes and praying for God's intervention. intervention. So uh, almost at midday, which was an hour and a half later, we heard uh, not only one, but two planes because there were 19 of us. Some were Wycliffe missionaries and the other were WAC missionaries. And uh, uh, we did, as they had suggested, put a white sheet on the ground, but almost immediately this hostile group of people around the airstrip ran onto the airstrip, pulled the sheets away, and everybody's heart sank. And uh, then the men, as the men were trying to get the sheets back from these people, uh, one of the Whitcliffe missionaries yelled at me, Maud, give us your white jacket. I just put on, it was far too hot to wear a white coat out there, but I knew I would need it when I came home to Ireland uh, after being evacuated. So I uh, quickly put, I put it on just so that it wouldn't delay me getting on the plane. So I pulled it off very quickly and threw it on the ground. And <laughs> I saw it from the air and he signaled to the other pilot because they'd already turned their planes to go off and leave us. And he signaled to the other pilot to come in to land. So the first plane landed was for the Whitcliffe missionaries and the second one was for us whackers. For our plane, which was the second one to land and the first to, 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 to take off, it was three minutes to board nine of us. And uh, uh, and for both planes to land and take off, it took exactly seven minutes. So you can imagine we were still putting our seatbelts on while we were in the air and tears dripping us. But, oh, it was just such a relief. And then we landed at um, Entebbe instead of going on to Nairobi. And we didn't understand at first why. Uh, but the first one I saw was one of the Whitcliffe missionaries who handed me my white coat. I said, well, could you manage to get that? Oh, he said it was tripping me as I was getting on our plane. So I still have the white coat here. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then the, the, the pilots told us a story. They were actually coming to get us at the original rendezvous 
But the rebels got their frequency on the radio transmitter and threatened them and said, do not go in to get those missionaries today. If you go in to get them, we'll either bomb the plane and take off or else we'll take you all hostage. And uh, so they discussed between them and they thought it was too dangerous. And they were actually on their way back to Nairobi. But the Americans had satellite surveillance of what was going on on the ground. And they did see that the, re- the rebels were coming to take us hostage. And so they contacted the missionaries on the ground in Nairobi and told them to contact the pilots and to turn their planes around because if they didn't get us out that day, they would never get us out. So uh, that was why they were an hour and a half late. It was also why we had to stop off in Entebbe to refuel. Mm. uh, Then eventually we got to Nairobi. Then we were evacuated. I actually, we couldn't get back to Congo. I actually went to work in southern Sudan for a couple of years until the door reopened to but but I just want to just to add this. When we eventually did get back two th- two or three years later, first question I was asked I asked was what happened when we left, and they said there were actually two vehicles coming to take us hostage. One got a flat tire and they didn't have a spare wheel, and the other one uh, uh, had um, uh, engine trouble. I think the timing belt had gone and they couldn't get it repaired. So God so wonderfully answered our prayers when we were praying there on the airstrip, twos and threes together. God was busy answering our prayers. So we just couldn't praise the Lord enough. Amazing. But Maud, um, I, I want to talk about what happened to you just more recently. But but in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, there's been a lot of missionary activity, but a lot of missionary suffering as well. And um, when you look at it, do you think it's worth it? Oh, uh, very much so. Uh, Paul, uh, uh, Peter talks about this in First Peter 4 and 12. Don't be surprised at what the suffering you're, what you have to suffer uh, because it has great rewards. And I have found that that through these uh, incidents that I have had, uh, particularly the shooting incident, uh, People are so, so interested. And just to prove God through it and his grace and his strength is sufficient. And he does give peace. You know, David said in the 23rd Psalm, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And I can honestly say that when I was standing there uh, thinking my life was ebbing away after being shot, I really was very conscious of God's presence and God's peace. No fear, just the real sense of his presence. Well, tell us about it, because really most people of your age would have retired and not gone back to their their place of work. But how old were you when you went back to the Democratic Republic of the Congo? Uh, Well, uh, that time, uh, the time of the shooting incident, 75 years. (laughs) 75. So you've gone back for how long? I had gone back for six months at that stage because at that stage I was doing six months back home and six months out there. Again, because of the instability of the country. Yes. And what happened? Why were you shot? Well, I had been called. It was in January of of 2015. And I had been called to the maternity, as I often was, in the middle of the night if there was a difficult delivery. And the, the midwives would invi- would call me to, to help them with the delivery of a baby. Now, the midwife came, because we live in a remote area where there's no, there's no uh, 
phone activity, there's no mobile phone uh, possibilities, no electricity, no running water. We have solar panels and things like that. But I have no glass in my windows, so I just had shutters on my bedroom window. So she wrapped the window and told me that uh, I was needed in the maternity, and she proceeded to tell me about her lady who had had three previous cesarean sections had come in and obviously was needing a cesarean section. So I inquired about the the, the uh, lady's condition and the baby's condition, and everything was fine. So I asked about two nurse surgeons that we have who usually do the cesarean sections, and she said, oh, yes, they're there, they're, they're ready. To, we're just waiting for you, madam. I said, well, if everything's fine, and because I was handing over the work to them anyhow, I said, you go ahead. If there's any problems, please come back and call me. Or if you need any medication or anything, come back and call me. And off she went. Now, about 10, 15 minutes later, there was another rap on the windows, the shutters. And male voice said, mademoiselle, you're urgently needed in the maternity. And I said, uh, but I've, that's okay. I've dealt with the problem. I thought it was an anxious husband, uh, mm. patient. And he continued to tell me that I was urgently needed, desperately needed. And I tried to reassure him everything was under control. But because he was so insistent, I said, okay, I'll go. Now, uh, normally the front door was really beside my bedroom, but I didn't go out of it. Thankfully, I went out through the back door where my night guard was. And my night guard, we locked the back door and went off to the maternity. And when I got there, I met some people in the courtyard between the maternity and the operating theater. So I asked why they'd called me. And they said, uh, uh, they looked at me strangely and they didn't answer. And then I asked again and they said, look, mademoiselle, we didn't call you. And I said, well, maybe somebody else called. And I, they said, no, we're the nurses in the maternity. They were the midwives. We didn't call you. And uh, I said, well, where's the husband of the patient? Because I think he was the one who called me. And uh, she said, oh, he's in the operating theater with his wife. And they're they're just about to start the cesarean section. Uh, so I said to my little night guard, I don't understand this, but obviously I'm not needed. Let's go back to the house. So we went back to the house and we'd just gone into uh, the compound, the fence around my house. And we're walking up the side of my house to go to the back door when suddenly two bandits came running around from the back of the house, both wearing masks and camouflage clothing. One of them grabbed my night guard and went off with him. The other one pointed a gun at me. and. Uh, 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 of course, of course, first of all, I froze with fear, as you do in the middle of the night. And uh, 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 then I thought, he's not getting the better of me. So I went to grab the gun. <laughs> <laughs> and as I grabbed the gun, he pulled the trigger. At first, I didn't know whether it was a real gun because it was wrapped up in leaves and things. It was camouflaged as well. But when I when he pulled the trigger, I knew it was a real gun. Terrific bang, a terrific pain through my shoulder. And then I yelled, and I thought, what do I do now? So I, thought, I yelled at the top of my voice, and then um, he ran off. And uh, uh, then I started calling for the pastor, and I could feel the blood trickling down my back, so I pressed my back firmly against the wall and kept calling for various people. But everybody was terrified to come out of their houses because they could hear the gunfire, and they, could, uh, they uh, heard me shouting as well. So nobody came for quite a long time. It must have been seven to ten minutes, but it seemed like an eternity. Mm. It was while I was standing there and uh, just thinking, well, Lord, um, 
uh, I just thank you for all I've read. Just thanked him for his peace, first of all, and the, the assurance of his presence with me. Uh, uh, but I did say to him, Lord, I would really like a little longer. I haven't finished the projects here yet. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I was so enjoying teaching the Bible to Bible school and, and preaching the gospel and leading so many of these maternity patients to the Lord. I really didn't want to go to heaven just immediately. So I, <laughs> I would like a little longer. And also it passed across my mind when I was standing there alone and nobody responding. This must have been the slight and just a very, very slight resemblance to what the Lord felt on the cross when he was alone on the cross. And no one, uh, uh, there was no one there to, to, to help him because he had to go through that agony by himself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, as I stood there, I just, and I thought, Lord, what, well, thank you for the honor. It crossed my mind as well while I was standing there. Thank you, Lord, for the honor of being able to identify with you in your suffering. I consider that a tremendous honor and privilege. And, uh, then, um, and then eventually my little night guard got freed from the bandit who had held him and he came back to me and he said, Mademoiselle, I go and call the pastor and various other ones. And very soon I heard them beating the drum. They have a doctor talking drums out there and they're calling and, and very, very soon then a lot of people were around me helping me into the house and then it just collapsed on the floor. And eventually then they had to send, because we had no, I had a satellite phone, but no one knew how to work it except me, but I wasn't in any condition I couldn't use. Uh, I was practically unconscious by this day because I'd lost so much blood. And then they started rendering first aid and the pastor sent people to the the chief, uh, the head chief in the area about seven kilometers away and also to Punya, our nearest town, to contact our church leaders and math to ask them if they could come and help. But that was 30 miles away, and they had to go on bicycles. But eventually, <laughs> the vehicle, and he then helped them. Amazing. Did the did the bullet lodge in your body, or did it come out to the other side? Uh, there were actually two bullets, and it went in at my shoulder, and it was just amazing. It passed through my body, came out at my spine, fractured two ribs and partially destroyed two vertebrae. And this is why it's such a miracle. It didn't sever my spinal cord. I mm. could have been paralyzed or I could have bled to death. And it didn't even puncture my lungs. So it was just amazing. It was amazing. a miracle just how the Lord preserved my life. And then eventually math came. About the math, they're the aviation organization. Missionary that, that aviation. missionaries, yes. They were tremendous. And a doctor and his wife from Nebobongo, whom I knew very well, good friends of mine, they also got blood uh, from fellow missionaries and brought it down. And uh, apparently I was unconscious by the time they arrived. Apparently they worked on me for about an hour and a half until they got my blood pressure recordable, until I was fit for flying. And then they flew me up to me. Did they find the person who shot you? Yes, yes, they, 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 they got one of the arrested, one of them that night, and then they eventually did get the other one maybe two days later. He, mm. he had run down onto the airstrip and hidden in the forest, uh, but they eventually got them and they were arrested. But the one who actually shot me has, has last year he died, I think of liver disease because he was an mm. Oh, sad. They were, um, they were ex-military men from mm. Algeria, so they didn't actually know our area. Now, Maud, time is going, but I'd love you to tell tell us 
at least just one story, maybe of somebody you remember who came to trust Jesus Christ when you were out there as a, doing missionary work. Because that was the main thrust. You wanted people to know about the love of God. Tell us one of the stories you recall. Well, I was doing a maternity ward round one morning and I came to this lady who had given birth to this beautiful baby and her little girl, of uh, like a four-year-old, I would say she was, was standing by her side and her little dress was all torn. And I could see a rope around her neck and it went down her back and round her waist, like the way they tied up slaves. And I said to her, why have you got that awful rope round your little girl's neck and round her body? And she didn't answer me. And I asked about two or three times. She didn't answer. So eventually the midwife who was doing the ward round, the African midwife who was doing the ward with me, around the ward round with me, uh, she and she asked her and she persuaded her to tell us the story. And the story was that she'd given birth uh, to, I think, maybe four children before this. And all the children had died at various stages, either before birth, during birth or after birth. When this little girl was um, uh, born, she went to the witch doctor and she said, can you prevent the demons from taking away my babies? Because I've lost all my babies. All I have is this little girl. And uh, he said, yes, but she'll always be a slave to me. And every year you have to bring a a goat or the blood of a goat or a sheep or something so that we can do a sacrifice every year to the demons uh, so that the little girl will not die. And so this gave me a wonderful opportunity to share with her why I had come to Africa. It wasn't just to deliver babies. My main thrust was to tell them about Jesus and how Jesus came to earth to deliver us from from sin of every kind and how God could deliver and how God could help her uh, if if she just put her trust in him and how he could prevent, he he could look after the little girl if she only put her trust in him. And uh, so she listened, but she didn't respond. And so day after day, then I sent the pastor to explain to her again the gospel and her importance. So a few days later, she was ready to go home. And I said to her, "Um, well, have you done anything about what we were telling you about the gospel, accepting Jesus into your heart and life? And she said, yes, she smiled and said, yes, I've asked him. And I said, well, what about your little girl? And I looked up and she said, I've taken, I've cut the ropes off. And she'd cut the, cut the ropes off the little girl. So it was wonderful. Uh, she came from quite a long way away because some of those patients walk long distances to come to us. So we connected her up to a little church near where she lived and, and uh, told her to go to the health center. The child was ill to go to the health center, not to the witch doctor. And uh, uh, so it was just wonderful to see how uh, the change in her life at that time. Wonderful. Now that you must have hundreds of stories of answers to prayer. But again, have you got one that, um, I don't know, stands out or you think, do you know, that was a very special answer to prayer? Uh, well, there's so many. I've already mentioned. Yes, you have. When we were and and uh, uh, yes, at evacuation. And uh, um, uh, I'm trying to think of. Oh, uh, certainly at times because we're in such an isolated area and we have no very little means of communication with anybody except for a radio transmitter and uh, occasionally math would come and drop us mail because there was no mail and uh, so I had been uh, I had sent luggage out from home one of the times and two years later 
I still haven't received my luggage, my heavy luggage. It you shouldn't have used the Royal Russia. Mail. <laughs> <laughs> and the mail could have, let, and you know, I would get Christmas cards the following year because it was so delayed. But I was praying very much about this luggage, and I thought it's lost forever. Mm. I really made that a specific point for prayer, and I still have in my Bible dates prayed about luggage, and then eventually the luggage arrived. But mm. Specifically, when I fasted and prayed and asked God to deliver that luggage, because there were vital things that we needed in it for the hospital, mm. Bible school, etc. And it eventually came after pa- fasting and praying. Specific answer to prayer. Wonderful. Now, Maud, um, we're very glad you survived that shooting. But supposing you had died, would you have been certain of going to heaven? Absolutely certain, because. You know, I always go back to that very famous verse in Scripture, John 3 and 16. God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him, that's all he asks us to do, to believe in him, shall not perish, shall not go to hell, but shall have everlasting life, shall go to heaven. And basically, just believing that and believing the Bible and just knowing, reading the story of Jesus' resurrection, you could not but not believe. Uh, no, never had any doubt, absolute assurance that I would go to heaven. And um, looking back on your very long experience in, 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 in Africa, etc., do you ever regret going there? Do you sometimes think, oh, maybe I should have stayed in the UK and Northern uh, Ireland? And... I suppose there were one or two occasions when things were really getting on top of me out there. Very rare occasion, very rare occasion. But no, on the whole, I counted a tremendous privilege to serve the Lord there, a tremendous honor and privilege to to serve the Lord. You know, uh, right at the very beginning when I was in Bible school, the Lord gave me some promises from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and the last few verses. And it's saying uh, to he was uh, Paul was writing to the Corinthians and said, consider your call, brethren. Not many were wise, not many were powerful, but God chose the weak and the foolish of this world. And he gives a reason why that no flesh should, should should glory in his presence. And then he ends up by saying in the last verse, let him who boasts or let him who glory boasts or glory in our Lord Jesus Christ. So I, 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 I count it a tremendous honor and privilege. And I say to young people, you wanting excitement in life, go out to Go, to, go into the Lord's work, you'll find there's plenty of excitement in the, in the Lord's work, but plenty of challenges. But uh, we can prove he's always faithful. He's always there. You know, the Living Bible translation of First uh, Corinthians or 2 Corinthians um, uh, 12, 9 and 10, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in work and weakness. It says in the uh, Living Bible, I am with you. That is all you need. And that mm. I can, ident- I can uh, uh, identify with that. And on many occasions out there, I was just reassured that the Lord was with me. And that was all I needed. So long as I knew he was with me, he would supply everything that I needed. He would supply all my practical, material and emotional needs as well. And, and so it's been wonderful to prove him uh, all, the all-sufficient one. 
Maud Kells, LBE, thank you very, very much. It's been really a terrific treat and a privilege to 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 hear you. But I must say, when when one reads your biography as well, I, I think we can hear you speaking and telling your stories there. But thank you so much, Maud, and God bless you. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been a tremendous privilege to be able to share. Thank you.